We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's also in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. He's the only man to have coached his teams to a junior college national title, an NIT championship, and the NCAA title. He's been his conference's coach of the year six times, including twice in the Missouri Valley Conference, three times in the Southwest Conference, and once in the SEC. He was the National Coach of the Year in 1994. And when he played you, you knew you were in for 40 minutes of hell. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, me, Mr. Nolan Richardson. Coach, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Rich, it's, it's certainly good to be with you. Uh, I appreciate the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. Um, well, Nolan, let's let's dig in. I, I I love you know kind of hearing about the background of uh, of my guests. You're you're born in El Paso, Texas, and largely raised by your grandmother. Tell me a little bit about you know your childhood in El Paso and and you know kind of what life was like and and your years at Bowie High School where you were a football, basketball, and baseball star. You know they they keep leaving out track. I, I high jump. You know, for the track team, it was amazing. But I had a uh, what I would say is, is a wonderful uh, uh, upbringing by a grandmother. Most of the most of the uh, kids had a young mother. Of course, my my mom passed away when I was about three 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 years old, and uh, two two sisters that uh, was one was older and one was younger. And so my grandmother came to California where we stayed. And, and picked us up and raised us as her kids. And uh, I, I, she, she's always been my number one person. She's always been my hero. You know, a lot of kids ran around wanting to be somebody uh, that was famous. The fame, most famous person in my whole life was my grandmother. And so she, she, she raised us with, the, with, with uh, basically almost by herself, working uh, hard job. Uh, she was a ch- fried chicken at most of the, the chicken places in the El Paso area. Uh, we had I had a grandfather that passed away when I was ten. My dad passed away when I was twelve. So it, it's been a lot of tragedy in our lives as we grew up. But old Granny, she kept it all together and kept us all together and kept us healthy. We were raised in a, a Hispanic neighborhood and. I spent almost 17 years of my life in that neighborhood and I was able to learn how to speak Spanish a little bit. And I ended up going to a high a Douglas school back in those days. We could only go to a certain school. And since we were black, we were not allowed to go to an integrated school. So it was during the Jim Crow years. So I grew up all the way from first grade to the eighth grade at the black school. And then the laws changed where we were able to go 
to the school in our neighborhood, and that was Bowie High School. It was very close to my neighborhood. I lived in a total Hispanic neighborhood, and I remember being maybe the only black kid on the campus when we started off. I was a freshman, and I was able to connect to sports. And in my freshman year, I was on the freshman team, football, baseball, basketball, track, whatever whatever they had. If they had marbles, I would have been part of that. Uh, <laughs> enjoyed it. Enjoyed my my young growing up. And and uh, I I know you you were offered a contract to play pro baseball, um, but opted to go to. Eastern Arizona Junior College uh, to to continue on with basketball. What was what was the thinking there? It was just basketball your your favorite sport, or did you just feel that was you know the one where you had the the greatest future? Well, I, I thought I grew up as a baseball player. Uh, my grandmother was a great fan of Jackie Robinson, and and I I, I actually mm-hmm. loved the game of baseball simply because it was the only organized sport that an African-American kid could actually be a participant in it. And it was a little league and, and, and I played off maybe four or five years in a little league because I put my age up to eight when I was seven and I joined the team at seven and I was probably better than most all the 12 year olds that played on that team. I guess that's why I love the coach so much because everybody thought I was overage and there was underage. And, and when it was over age, they put me on first uh, first base or the third base coaching box. And I could call, I could do the signals and things like that. I enjoyed all that. So it kind of became a part of me wanting to, to, to play baseball. The sure. reason I went to Eastern Arizona is that back in the day, you know, you had to have better than a three-point. I was, my, my ideas were heading to the University of Arizona. And the reason I want to go there is because baseball was huge in Arizona. That's where all the camps and spring camps and everything took place in either Tucson, Phoenix, and, and Arizona. And so I, I thought if I got into that area, I would be able to have a chance to play major or have an opportunity to be a major league baseball player. Sure. I love basketball and I love baseball and I like football, you know, but uh, baseball was the only that I was able to, to sign and not go to because of granny wanted me to finish school and she would not sign the papers and did what she write. I, I, I did. She made the right decision. So, uh, you know, it was very easy for me to participate in all three sports and then, then have an opportunity to choose a sport that I could go play and know granny wouldn't have to pay to pay for me to go to college. Sure. Okay, all right, makes sense. And so, after a year at Eastern Arizona, you come back uh, to El Paso, and you uh, are going to play basketball at well, what was then Texas Western, but which you know we now know as UTEP, Texas El Paso. Um, you start off playing for a guy named Harold Davis, and you put up big numbers. You, you're you're a sophomore. You're scoring twenty one points, ten boards. Uh, tell me about that first year. Uh, playing for Harold Davis on what was basically a 500 team. You know, the, the greatest thing of, uh, that I enjoyed, that's why I came back home, was it was an up-tempo game and it was a wide-open court play. And that's who I was, and I wide-open course player. And playing for him, you know, uh, I, I never will forget, he, uh, you know, one of those years we were playing at Centenary and they had a big tournament there. And, I, and we were 6-0, and I believe. And he calls me in, Harold, Coach Davis calls me in and says that I wasn't going to be able to make the trip. I thought maybe, you know, I hurt myself a little bit, but it wasn't that bad. And he, and I said, well, Coach, I'm, I'm all right. He says, no, it has nothing to do with injury. It has something to do with they don't allow blacks on the court. Hmm. So I'm so in reality, we were 12-12, and 12, but I was, I was 12-9. and nine. <laughs> because the, the, the game they went up there, they lost all three ball games. And, and when they came back home, it was six and three. But when they left home, they were six and zero. Oh, but they also left their leading scorer, probably one of the leading rebounders, uh, at home. Yeah. And uh, I never will forget that. Mm. 
I, I saw an interview of you uh, or somewhere you were speaking and uh, it, I'm not sure if it was in your college. I mean, I'm guessing it was in your college years where the team was going to take a road trip and whatever, wherever you were going, you were going to have to stay in a different hotel. And you said something along the lines of, well, I'm not going to go then. And your grandmother said, you know, basically what would Jackie Robinson do? You know, he would go and, right. you know, and, and that kind of changed your, your mindset. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, my grandmother, you know, she, she was, like I said, she, she had heard from my high school baseball coach, you know, the year, the year before we won district and, and we went to, to Abilene or Odessa, one of those two, to, and of course they didn't allow any blacks or blacks to stay in the hotels probably restaurants you couldn't basically eat in them also so mm -hmm. there i was the only african-american on an all-hispanic baseball team that had just won the city in el paso to, to play a game i went that year and did pretty good and then of course we it's amazing when we won the ball game and then it's a two out of three so the next year we go undefeated again and we got the same scenario and i and i told the coach i said hey i'm not making this one and he says, what do you mean? We've we got the same kind of setup, Coach, I know it. I said, no, that's why I'm not making it. I said, you know, those guys, they get to go, they get to sit down and order a meal. I have to go across the railroad tracks just to stay with a little black family and, and miss out on the things that I, I thought I was, would be able to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, well, things hadn't changed yet but I'll be over to your house tonight to talk to your grandmother. And that's what he did. And she, at that point, she, he told her that I had told him that he wasn't going. And she said, well, first of all, Nolan's not old enough to make decisions like that. Now, when he gets old enough to make a decision like that, then I'll understand. But what he doesn't understand is that what he's going to try to do is to go to play that games or those games and do the best he can so he can open more doors for his kids. Well, at that point, I thought she meant that I was had some kids, that I was going to have some kids. But what she meant was some black African-American kids who are going to face the same problem if someone don't open the door. She says, take Jackie Robinson, for example. If he had not done what he did or put up with what the things he put up with, would you be playing baseball at Bowie High School? Probably not. So I think it's time for you to make that trip and let your bat do the talking. And I, that, I hit two home runs that day when <laughs> I got there. I, I didn't I really, I, I really took that one. Uh, and I've always said, when they would say to me, you, you, you play like you have a, a, a weight on your shoulder, a, a, I said, no, I got more than, than my, I, I got more than just the weight on the shoulder. I got a mountain on my shoulder, and 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 I, and I have to do well. Right. I yeah. had no other other way to go, and and respect and love her like I like I like I had done. Whatever she told me, that's what I had. Was not worried about not not doing it. I did it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing, um, and 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 but then Harold Davis uh, is replaced by Don Haskins at Texas El Paso, right. and he comes in, and I want to talk a little bit about him because you played for him for two years, and right the, the story I hear is that you're helping him move in at some point, and he's telling you, ah, I heard you were a great football player, you score twenty points a game in hoops, great baseball player but I heard you can't guard a telephone post. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and if you want to win. exactly what he told me. <laughs> and so t tell me a little bit about your friend, because obviously, you know, he, Don Haskins, Hall of Famer now. Well, I, I don't, he didn't know who I was either. You know, he pulled up in front of the dormitories and I was there with a football player, I guess. I don't know what we were doing. And, and he, he, he stuck his head in the door and said, anybody here can help me move some furniture. And I, and I, and I looked out and saw he had he had a, an old station wagon with three little boys and his wife. Uh, they were moving in the miners' hall at 
that's where all the athletes stay. And he, he was the dorm director along with being the basketball coach. So we get to moving his stuff and everything. And, 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 and the guy that was named Chapel, I think, said to me, hey, Nolan, uh, I believe that's Coach Haskins, and I think he overheard it. He said, so you're Richardson? And I said, yes, sir. He said, oh, I need to talk to you when we get through with moving the furniture in. I said, okay. So I, I go in his little office. It's right next to the, to the place that he would move his stuff in. And I sit down and he says, man, I hear you one hell of an athlete. You know, and I'm feeling pretty good. He knows a little bit about me. I'm averaging 21 points a game, second leading score in the conference, on my way back. Every every all the magazines got me projected of making an all-American team, and he said to me, uh, "Yeah, I hear you're a baseball player." I said, "Yes, sir," but the miners don't have baseball uh, yet. They they're saying they will have it the next year, my senior. He says, "Okay," and I hear you a wide out, split in. I said, "Yes, sir. I can play football." He said, matter of fact, you made all district in all those sports, didn't you? Yeah. Including baseball. Yep. And so he said, well, and I also heard that you couldn't guard a telegraph post. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. And then, you know, another story was when, you know, things began to where I had to pass it 10 times, and, you know, count your passes and it must go inside before you take the shot. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I start playing on, I start playing on the defensive side of the ball because he seemed to like that more than he liked the offensive side, because if I made a mistake offensively or defensively, I'm coming out of the game. So I was saying, I'm going to be best defensive player so I can stay in the game longer. Right. And so he, he changed my attitude about the word of, of guarding someone. And then of course he says that, not only did I learn to guard someone, I, I learned how to pass the ball to my teammates. He says a lot of times, I don't think Nolan knew he had a teammate. <laughs> he, he was the whole show. So uh, <laughs> he, he, was a, he was a special kind of a guy that, that, that believed in discipline and pushed you to your, to your limits. He, he would push you to your limits. And uh, I had a, a wonderful uh, guy to follow from a standpoint of coaching. Yeah. And well, yeah. And, and you guys start winning almost immediately when he comes in. So obviously it gets a guy like you to buy into the system. Um, and then he famously, you, you graduate in 63 and he's now starting to really build something starts in your last couple of years. He's starting to build something, which obviously culminates in 66 when he right. takes Texas Western, which is, uh, you know, is not a yeah UTEP, which is not a basketball blue blood at that point. He brings them in and, and you play and they play Kentucky in the final. Famously starts right. five African Americans and uh, and beats Kentucky, which had you know Pat Riley and guys like that on the team. Um, what was it like? Even though you were a couple of years removed, what was it like watching that, knowing the persons you know involved and the coach, et cetera, <clears throat> et cetera. Well, you know, that was, that was so exciting because I was like an eighth grade or ninth grade uh, basketball coach at the high school that I had gone to junior high. And, and so that was, you know, something that was so special. And the special part is that the two key players, which was Harry Flanoy rebounder and Orson artist, they played, I, I was there when they were freshmen. So I knew those guys and they, cause they practiced with us every single day. Sure. And, and I knew they were going to be pretty good. And so I had that connection. And, of course, Bobby Joe Hill, the little point guard, and I became very, very close friends, uh, very close, just like brothers. And uh, I, I followed them. And, you know, I was, I was as high, as, so happy to the fact that, you know, the, that coach played the ones that he had in, to win. I mean, I think it, it ain't about because Kentucky is white and we're uh, better players, all black. But the fact that he would put the players that, like Willie Worsley normally didn't start, but with his quickness and speed, he he he, he match up. Nobody matched him, and mm -hmm. so he was he was inserted into the starting lineup. And and so to me, 
it was more of strategy among the coach getting his team ready to play for all the marbles. And, and Coach Haskins did that. Yeah. Um, so I was I was very, uh, you know, I, I every time I see him, I, I just say, you know, you open the doors for a lot of black kids to play, a lot of coaches to get jobs. Maybe, you know, we'll maybe one day become athletic directors, uh, uh, presidents of colleges. I mean, we got to we got to get uh, African American players, coaches, an opportunity to have key jobs. It's not secondary jobs that we've had, sure. uh, that we did have. Yeah, yeah, and he and he he and it's funny. He was always just very matter of fact about. It. He's like, look, I put the guys out there who gave me the best chance to win. Like that's what my job is, and I didn't really even think about it until afterward. Well, and and so when when you got out of UTEP, you went to back to your alma mater and you wanted to get into a, a life of teaching and coaching. And you had a um, was it the principal Pollock who you know kind of pulled you aside That's and said, "Here's how this is going to work." Tell Mr. me about Pollock. That. Yeah. Oh, that was that was an amazing story too. Uh, uh, he called me in one day. You know, I was doing a pretty good job doing some coaching and. And he said to me, he says, Nolan, uh, you know, as time goes on, you, you, you're doing a great job, but we got to start keying in on something that you want to be the coach in. In other words, you're coaching the eighth grade football, the ninth grade basketball. You got to you, you have a system baseball. You know, you got you got many sports that you can yeah, go through, but but what which one do you like to be? And I said, I like to work toward being a football coach. And he said to me, no, 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 not in my lifetime. It's probably not in yours either that we should see that happen. So let's, if, if anything, I know that you could move into the baseball. You have a possibility of being the basketball coach on this campus if you're still here. So we, you know, as you go along, as you coaching, you try to make you try to lean yourself toward one of the games that you would love to do. So I went basketball because he told me football was out. Right. And and baseball, I, I, I didn't. I, I like playing baseball, not coaching it as much because I thought it was not up. It wasn't fast enough or moving enough. It's okay to play it, but I, I didn't think it was that okay to coach it as much, even though I coached it. And later on, I became the golf coach. I, I, I replaced baseball to golf and, and was able to do that. So Mr. Follett opened the doors for me. Yeah. As old Granny would say, just crack it, you kick it down. You just put a foot in and kick the rest of it down and go to work. And that's, that's, all I, that's all I worked on, is going to work at what I loved. And, and I love basketball. And, uh, and it, it worked out for me. And and so you coach it at Bowie uh, for the better part of ten years, and you're the first coach all together, all together, thirteen years. Oh, thirteen years at Bowie. Yes. Okay. So I was, I was a ten year probably head coach at ten years of of uh, ten years of that was uh, was the head coach at Bowie, and the other three was being an assistant in the seventh and eighth and ninth grade. Oh, gotcha. All together, I spent 13 years there. Okay. And so you're, and when you're the head coach, you are the first coach in El Paso high school history to win 30 games in a season, you know, Bowie high school. And you did it with a team where you didn't have a single six footer, which is amazing. Is that when you started to kind of pull together your coaching philosophy a little bit? Yes. I, I kind of did some changing from the way I had, that started off, I wasn't very successful because we weren't very big. Yeah. And so uh, I, I spent, I spent most of our time working on very aggressive defense and trapping and that kind of things. I, I, uh, I worked extremely hard, uh, extremely hard on, on trying to get our guys to play at a tempo that other teams, uh, they, you know, the, coach Haskins had everybody pretty much slowed down, walking it up the floor. Well, I, I changed that. And, and I think be able to change that and having the little 
Hispanic Mexican kid who could run all day and all night. And, and they, you know, the thing about it is very aggressive. And, and we became very aggressive. And, and during a certain period of my career in high school, nobody wanted to play us, I can tell you that. <laughs> and, and on the back of that, you, you go into the junior college ranks, you go to Western Texas College in Snyder, Texas, and if if I if I'm getting my facts right, there's 50 or so junior colleges in Texas. Not one right. has a black head coach, uh, and right. the, the athletic director basically pulls you aside and says, "You you better win fast, or else you know you, me, and the school president are going to be looking for tickets out of town." Uh, and you yep. start winning fast. <laughs> tell me tell me about that experience. I tell you, Rich, it, it was as weird as it can be. Uh, I went up there to the junior college, trying to get into the college life any way I could, and and I, they gave they interviewed me. Sure. But the the funny part about it is Dr. Simpson was the AD, and and he came to El Paso. Never have I ever heard that the AD would go to a place, and then bring the coach in, and that's what they did. They brought him to meet me and my family and talk and. And we spent the day together, kind of. And then he went back and sent for me to come in and visit with the board. And so while we were there, I had made my mind up. I was making about 13000 a year. And we were struggling. And I said, well, I can take a, a cut and pay it just to get in. And and I I, I decided, well, maybe I can live off 11000 a year. So that'd be the lowest. If it becomes any lower than that, I got to stay in the school system. Anyway, <laughs> we go through the meeting, and they ask me questions. I give them the best answers I could. And so he, they, the meeting was over, and Coach was uh, Coach Simpson was going to drive me back to the airport. And on our way out over the intercom, he says, "I need to talk to Coach Simpson and and Coach Richardson. Would you please come to the principal's office?" I mean, to the to the uh, yeah to the, the president's office, and the Sid, which was Sid Sampson, he he said, well, "Something's up. Uh, let's go, coach. Let's see what's going on. Maybe they're going to tell us something." <laughs> well, when I got up there, the president said to me, he "says Coach, have a seat. I, I'd like to visit with you a little bit more." So he said, "You know, we don't have a lot of money." I said, "Well," he says, "and I feel embarrassed to offer you a job." And you're capable of doing the things that I, you know, that I see here on your resume. I said, you know, I, it just depends on what we're talking about. Uh, his name was Clinton, Dr. Clinton. He mm -hmm. said, okay, I'll give you a one-year deal and we'll pay you 17000 I mm -hmm. said, well, I almost broke his hand getting to the pen. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I, I'm going for 11 and, and comes out with 17 and that means a $4,000 raise. We, we're going to eat more than beans from now. You know, so, but the, the thing that scared me the most after the fact is, and I listen to all these guys, I had a one-year contract, one. Yeah. And that's why the guy said, if you don't do well, we're all going to be gone our way away from here. So the next year, I expected maybe a couple of years. I got a one-year contract. And it's funny. Not only did I get a one-year contract, the AD who brought me had quit, had found another job. So we had no AD that year. And so when I come back, the president calls me in and makes me the AD <laughs> in my third year. So I'm now a basketball coach, athletic director. We, we finished that year. We finished that year undefeated. And I, they asked me the question, how much, how many years did you get after that? Well, I, I went to Tulsa and got three years. Right. I said, and was the first paid coach in the, in the conference. But it, it didn't, it, it's, it's what I tell our guys. It's, it's all about loving. If you're in love with something, and I was in love with coaching and, 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 and winning, then you don't worry about how many years you got. Yeah. They come. They come. So, that, but if I had to do it all over again, knowing what I had gone through, I don't think I'd do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, One-year deals are, are scary. <laughs> and you have a guy on that team, when you win that national title, uh, the JUCO national title in 80, you've got a guy named Paul Pressey on your team. 
And so mm-hmm. you go, you go up to Tulsa and I love this part. Tell me if I've got the facts, right? You go up, they ask you for your resume and your resume basically just says, if you want to win, hire Nolan Richardson. <laughs> Absolutely. That was it. That was, that was the greatest resume. I've, I mean, they, they were looking for a coach that could get them out of the wilderness. It, it was, you know, they hadn't won over nine games or eight games in years or so. Right. And, uh, so that's why when I when I investigated the job, I said, "Hell, they need me. I don't need to write nothing else." Because at that point, I was probably twenty-five and zip zero, twenty-five or thirty. And I knew one thing could happen: to possibly go with some of my players to another college, or somebody come and get me, and maybe I can bring my kids to that college. But I had more options that that I could think about. So it, it all panned out the best for me. Yeah. And, and it's, it's amazing. Like looking at those, those, you know, kind of five years sorry, in Tulsa, a couple of things stand out. First of all, yeah, that first year you win the NIT, that's huge. Obviously um, you your very first game as the head coach at Tulsa is against Louisville. Who's the defending national champ, you know, Denny Crum and, you know, his squad, what was that like in your first, you know, kind of big time college basketball game? You're playing the defending national champs. Tell me about that experience. You know, Rich, I, I, I told my guys, I, I told them this story. I said, look, there are minus one player that won the national champion, Griffin, I think, Daryl Griffin. Sure. Daryl minus one. Is that his name? Yeah, Daryl Griffith, Dr. Duncanstein. Yes. They, they said, that's the only player they're missing off of a national championship team. And I says, and we're missing one of our players off of the junior college national championship team. I says, now the four of you are going to play the four of them. And I'm going to put my money in the four of you. And so I built it as a championship game between two national champions. And our guys, our guys played with their hearts and the fans had never seen anybody play as hard as, as that team played that night. Yeah. It was incredible. We turned, we turned Louisville over 34 times. Oh my God. There's a team that won a national championship and they lost it. Turnovers, 34 turnovers. Wow. To turn over a minute. It's amazing because because the way we played, there, there was no other school played like that. And matter of fact, there was a, a big-time coach at Kansas said, if Nolan thinks he can win playing the way he plays, if he wins seven games, he ought to be national coach of the year. Well, that year, I won 26 games that first year at Tulsa yeah. University. That's yeah. amazing. And, and Paul Fritz, who was the man they called the rubber band man. He yeah. was the rubber band yeah. And he and and two other things stood out to me on that team. One is so you're in Tulsa, which at that point has, you know, basically zero, you know, reputation in basketball. You knock off Oklahoma and Oklahoma State earlier in that year. So you become the de facto state champs, which is something you basically do for the next 5 or 6 years. I think you lost like one or two games to those two schools combined in your 5 years there. You you make a habit out of beating those two teams. Well, look at this. The thing, the thing that people don't remember is that we played Purdue. Now, uh, Louisville was like ranked in the top five. Purdue was in the final four with Joe Barry Carroll. Sure. And, we, and they came to Tulsa and got beat the next week that we, after we beat Louisville. Then we played Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Yeah. So if you were to look at our, our record – opening season record games we played every one of those games was big time division one schools yeah oklahoma oklahoma state or roberts all those were preseason basketball games purdue and two of those of that group one was a final four and the other one was a national champion it's amazing <laughs> and then yeah, and then you guys you go to the nit and one of the early games you play is against your old coach. You, you play UTEP and you beat him with Don Haskins as coach. What was that like going up against the old coach? 
That was that was really that week was a tough week because you know you you got mixed emotions and you know that you want to do your best because you figure that he's had a lot to do with whatever success you're you're having. Mm-hmm. Now it's a turn that uh, matter of fact we ended up playing each other twice and he won the one in, in, in the NCAA tournament. Uh, but you know you you want to do well, you want to play well. You want to show that you did pick up some things and, and, and that you were competitive. And, and that's, it isn't, as, as old granny say, you, if you go, if you're going out to get an ant, take a sludge hammer with you. And so that's, that's the theory we always use. I mean, hey, you, we, you, when you knock it out, you knock it out. You don't, you don't play around with it. You, you, you don't wound the king. You wound the king, he comes back to get you when he's alive. You got a problem when, when the king's mad at you. Serious problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so that that's what that's what I was talking about with Coach Haskins. You know, you can't wound him because he's gonna kill you. And right. so you got to go get him. and You got to knock it out. And so we had we had those kind of uh, conversations. Sure. Um, and the, and the next year, so you win the NIT that year. Now you've got a JUCO title and an NIT title. The next year. Uh, Tulsa wins the Missouri Valley Conference tournament. So you're going to the tournament, the NCAA tournament. During that year, you play UNC, uh, which is the eventual national champ. So, you know, Michael Jordan and, and James Worthy and all those guys. Uh, it's a close game. You lose, but it's a close game. And then in the NCAAs, you play a Houston team that goes to the final four that year, which has uh, not only Clyde Drexler, but a young Hakeem Olajuwon. Um and I know he was young at the time and pretty raw, but I had Cornbread Maxwell on this in a podcast maybe a month or two ago. And he said that Elijah mm-hmm. was the greatest player he ever played with or against. Uh, curious what your takes were on that. I've never seen a freshman that good. Yeah. Elijah was just un- unmerciful, unmerciful. I mean, he, he could block shots. He could, he could shoot the mid-range shots. You know, he, he was around the basket. He was just dangerous. And the thing about it is he made you alter your shots. And he just, he, he made everything so difficult. Uh, you know, we got beat three by three, I think. But but there was a couple of plays that, that could have, that went the wrong direction. Could have ended up having a chance to win that. And I thought if we could have gotten by Houston, you know, our next game would Carl Malone and, get, and, and his team. And I thought we were better than that team. And they mm-hmm. were on their way to Dallas. So, you know, matches, matchups and going through tournament time is who you play and who you didn't have to play. And, right. and sometimes they fall in the right spots and, you, and you're right there. Yeah. And then, and then, and it's interesting. Then the next year you play North Carolina again. And this, you know, now it's Sam Perkins and Brad Darty, still Michael Jordan, and you beat them. You beat them by 10, actually. Uh, what was it like playing those North Carolina teams? I mean, they were just loaded. Well, you know, uh, uh, Dean Smith, Michelangelo of the game. You know, Dean, Dean was, is, was, in my estimation at, at his period, was the king of the game. Sure. Uh, he had, he, he, his teams were always either in the lead eight or final four. Or not, he didn't win as many national championships that I thought he might have been able to, but you know, your best teams don't always win your championships. I, I thought we had some teams that had a chance to do that too. But Dean was was a hard hard one to, to, to muster. We had a, we had one great game against Dean's team in a, in the NCAA tournament. I think uh, it might be still the record. No one has ever double figure beat them in the tournament. I think we beat them one night by about 19, and that was the year that we were on our way to the Final Four, also out of out of the West region. Okay. But you know, Dean was Dean is by far one of the one of the true legends of the game. And and after after this, you know, kind of five year run, highly successful, obviously run at Tulsa, uh, you leave to go to Arkansas, Eddie Sutton has has been the coach at Arkansas had taken them to a final four back in the 70s and he was taking the Kentucky job and so you come into Arkansas you are the first African-American coach in the Southwest Conference 
and you were the first African-American coach in the South period um, at that point. Now you had done a few things like that in the past. So this wasn't new to you, but it's on a bigger, you know, kind of platform. Uh, what was that like to you? You know, the, the hardest part of coming into Arkansas was coming in with a sick daughter. My, my daughter had leukemia and, and, and was diagnosed on the Sunday that they had the, the, the NCAA tournament pairings. Mm-hmm. That was my final year there at the University of Tulsa. Taking the, the event, coming in here with her being a sick person, I, you know, and, and we had a team that that Coach Sutton had left, played nothing the way we played. You know, they were very methodical, slow down, good, solid kids. But with their coach having those kinds of problems, and I could care less about basketball. I was more concerned about my daughter's welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, when they offered the job to me, I turned, I turned it down because she had she had been diagnosed. But she talked me out of it. So in reality, she was the one that talked me into accepting the job at the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I don't think I was their number one choice, but it t- turned out to be that I was the one that was left that they wanted. And I mean, that 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 was a, a very difficult year, very difficult two years, because she, she passed away in the second year. Not in the first year I got the job, in the second year. Right. And we had, that was the only losing season I had had ever uh, over college. That first year at Arkansas. And, uh, right. Yeah, that's obviously with your your daughter being sick, you're moving to a new school. You've got, you know, a a team that was recruited by the last guy. They play, you know, a very methodical game. You want to press and run, Um, you know, obviously dealing with your daughter's illness. I mean, yeah, that's that's a that's a brutal way to start. That was Uh, that that was that was brutal. Yeah, brutal. Um, I I would not wish that on any anyone and especially coaching because. It takes so many hours away from being with your kid. Right. And, and that's what I did the most I could. And in about like your third or fourth year, you have a recruiting class that, that has to go down as one of the great collegiate recruiting classes of all time. Three number one draft picks come out of this class. Um, and, you know, you've, you've, after your first year at Arkansas, you're starting to win. But this, this group takes you to another level. It's in the backcourt, it's Todd Day and Lee Mayberry. And up front, it's Oliver Miller. And you finish first in the Southwest Conference that first year, the 89 season that they come in. Um, And you, I guess my first question, and you you go to the NCAA tournament. uh, Did you know what you had when when those guys came in? I mean, I, I, I assume coaches are always very optimistic about their recruiting classes, but this one was just obviously different. I tell you what, that that was a a huge gathering of uh, Lee Mayberry was probably the, you know, he he grew up in our house. Okay. My 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 son was Nolan, married to his sister. Hmm. They, he was their uncle, and I was their grandfather. So Lee Lee was like uh, heaven sent because he was being recruited by everybody in the country, mm-hmm. along with Todd Day. Uh, I had brought Todd Day's. Todd had a half brother that was here the year before Todd got here. Uh, you know, it just those guys were really, really special. Big O came at at the end to be a part of that group, and of course that was what we called the the new triplets. They had uh, Sydney and can't oh, think of the other guys. Maybe was, Ron Brewer and Marvin Delph. Yeah, Marvin Delph. Yeah. And it's kind of there. This that was our version of the triplets of those guys. The next year, that same team went to the Final Four. Yeah, that team goes to the Final Four. You ultimately lose to Duke in the national semis. That's right. the UNLV. You know, for years the NCAA final had been this incredibly close competitive game. That year, UNLV just blows the doors off everybody to include Duke in the final. You had played them right. earlier in the year really close. Right. You must have been thinking, right. we, oh, if we can just get to UNLV, we can play these guys. 
Yes, I, I thought that team was a team that might give us a chance, you know, to win. Well, it wasn't it wasn't the first year of those guys I'm talking about. I, I thought the year after when Kansas beat us, I think in the uh, the Elite Eight, they yeah. they went to the Final Four. That team, to me, had the had the people that could possibly win a national championship. They they came close. Right. Matter of fact, I think we led at halftime by about 12, 10 or 12 points. I think all hell broke loose and, and Kansas started hitting shots. And when you, if you can't stop it, then you that's that's usually what happens. You lose. Right. And so, uh, but that was a, that was the group that I thought, you know, when I look back, the possibility of winning three national championships was right there. That team was you know, loaded, three number one draft picks. They stick around for four years. Obviously, they get you to a final four um, and are close in a couple of other ones. But, yeah, just come up short. Um, and then and then they leave. Now you're in the SEC, um, So, which, you know, among other things, means Kentucky. Um, and you're in the SEC, and you have another banner recruiting class. Corliss Williamson and Scotty Thurman both come in. Um, and as freshmen, you guys win the SEC when they're freshmen, you win the SEC West, uh, and you get to, you play UNC in the, in the round of 16 in the same way that, you know, you kind of knew what you had with, with Day and Mayberry and Miller. Did you know what you had with Corliss Williamson and Scotty Thurman? Oh, that with, with big nasty, as we call him, which is Corliss Williamson, you know, <laughs> he was just an unusual giant of a man. It was sometimes when he uh, watched him in high school, it looked like a man playing with little boys. Sure. Uh, he was such a the, – the guy that really came on strong to me was was Scotty Thurman. Uh, you know, he he had all the – Scotty was one of those guys that, that thought he could beat you anything you played. Hmm. He was that kind of a guy. He didn't, sure. he didn't make a difference if he played marbles. He could beat you. That's what he felt. And that's you know, and and he he really, but the guys that I thought helped that team so much also was Corey Beck, mm-hmm. was 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 one of the guards uh, when he he came into the picture, along with uh, oh, Dwight okay. Dwight Stewart. Yeah, yeah, both from Memphis. Matter of fact, most of my recruiting came out of Memphis. Yeah, uh, a lot of Memphis guys on the roster. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 that '94 team is fascinating. So, in in what is effectively Thurman and Williamson sophomore year, you guys win the national championship. You only lose three games all year, um, and two of them were like a point or two. Um, and then you lose. We to, lost to I think, Alabama by one point. Yeah, and and I think Mississippi State. So two t- really t- tight games, and then interestingly you lose by 12 to Kentucky in the SEC final. And I wonder, is that one of those classic cases where, you know, that's just what you needed? Not that a coach ever wants to lose, but that's just what you need to kind of get everybody's head straight going into the NCAA tournament? Uh, that could have been said. I mean, sometimes we, we say things that sounds good, don't mean it's good because it sounds good. But, <laughs> you know, when you lose, you lose. I, I, I always think of Bill Russell when he said the only stat he likes and don't know about is the W side. It's a W. They don't give a damn if it's one point, half point, kicked it in, slide it in. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's W-I-N, win. That's, that's the most important stat of all the stats. You know, you can go back and say, well, we didn't rebound. I said, I, I can remember games that we got our rebound by 20 and won by 15. How do you do that? You know? Yeah. Uh, but you know, some the three-point line changes a lot of the game from the way we had it at a two-point game, and so there's many ways that you can win a basketball game, and your stats don't look so good. So that's why I say the W. Scotty was a W man. I called him. All those guys were W people. Yeah, they they were they paid attention to who won the game not who looked the prettiest. Right. Well, and speaking of the, uh, the three point shot, obviously the shot heard around Arkansas is Scotty Thurman's three, you know, the kind of that high arching three to beat Duke. 
in the uh, in the NCAA final. What was what was your what were you thinking when you saw that shot leave his hand? Every time Scotty shot left his hand, I thought it was going in. He's one of them guys. I had another kid like him named Steve Harris at Tulsa. Mm-hmm. He hardly ever missed, you know. I, I, and Scotty probably never missed three, four shots in practice. You know, a lot of guys who shoot a lot and, and miss a lot. But, but Scotty and, and, and of course, I think uh, Todd Day, those guys would put up shots in practice that they made in the game. And so every time you, he released it, I thought, well, you know, like he said, you know, a guy coming at me, I just put it up a little higher. I asked him that question. He probably don't remember. I said, what happens if you would have missed a shot? He said, we would have got, if we didn't get the rebound, coach, we would have probably stolen from him on the other end and come back and shoot again. And a lot of guys would say, oh, I don't know what I would have done. I, now, he already knew. He said, hey, we're going to get the ball back. Love it. That's awesome. <laughs> a good answer. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's the way he was. That was the way he was. Yeah. And then, and then that same team, the next year, you go right back to the final four, you go right back to the final and you come up short against UCLA, um, right. uh, which was, if I recall correctly, like they had a backup point guard in there or something like that. That's, that's the only game that haunts me probably more than any other game or baseball game when I was in high school. It haunts me because during that year, they had, had given me an award and it was a banquet as the most courageous by the sports writers. And in that, it, it, it took place around 1 or 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, the day of the game to play UCLA. And I never forget watching my daughter and watching the film. And, and, and my, it, I got so, so teary-eyed and hurting inside because she's not here to witness any of this, who, who told me this is where I needed to go. Right. And so I went to the hotel and, and took a nap. And when I got up, I just didn't have that vinegar and anger with me the way I, I always went into a game angry, always. And that's, that was my motivating factor. They, they've taken something from you. You, 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 don't, you, don't, you can't give nothing. But I, I didn't have that kind of a talk with my team. I was too subdued. Mm. It was like, okay, fellas, we're here. We should win the national championship back to back. It ain't no big deal. We've been here before. And 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 I I take all the responsibility and blame for not doing the things that I normally do before a big game, and that's get after you verbally to get you ready and motivated to go out and give your best. Right. I think they did, but it, they just didn't quite. Uh, I just couldn't. I couldn't get the fight that I wanted. I, I couldn't get them to come to the fight the way I wanted them to come to that fight. But and and uh, a couple of years later, you're this is the 2000 season. It's not a great season. You're you're basically right around 500 going into the turn to, into the SEC tournament, and you guys right. go just tremendous run where you knock off uh georgia a t- uh, uh, like a top 20 kentucky team a, a top 10 lsu team and auburn you just got on one of those rolls tell me tell me what that was like you know on a team that you know was not looking to you know kind of make a lot of noise well, in the season. You, you know the sad part that they're, they're, they didn't know that team was a very very good team mm-hmm. it, and, and it lost some games that probably could have won but it didn't. Right. But it didn't surprise me of them going on that type of role against those teams. We had already played them. Sure. And, and they struggled to beat us that time. Now, if no, if you look back, I think we played Auburn a week before the tournament. So we beat Auburn like twice who was in the top five before we got to the tournament. Right. And, and so we went from there and had you know, that four in a row, I think we could have played another game. We could have been five, six, because the, the confidence that they, those guys had grown coming out of the regular season into the tournament play was unbelievable confidence. 
they thought they could play. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's all I needed. Just just think you can, you got a shot. And that's yeah. that's exactly what they did. So uh, it didn't surprise me, but the way it happened and how hard they worked and played uh, every game. You know, a lot of times you get burned a little bit playing the way we play. You know, you everybody, if you're in there a minute, you got to play as hard as you can for one minute. And and everyone that went into that ball game paid the price. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to that point and, and kind of touching on the, you know, the whole notion of 40 minutes of hell, which is, you know, one of the things obviously you're well known for. One thing I didn't appreciate was that in practice, you would go 40 minutes with no basketball. It was running, it was lifting, it was jumping, it was getting ready for that 40 minutes hell. Then came out the basketballs. Um, and I'm just curious, was that something that, you know, when did, when did you kind of come to that, that, you know, that was, that was what you were going to do. And that was going to be kind of the, the, the mentality that your teams would take on. You know, I, I did that and not knowing that I was doing that. And, and, it, and, and it, it's amazing because I had uh, Hispanic kids in El Paso when I'd go home, some of those guys I played with their dads and what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and and one of the kids came up to me that was a youngster and he said, Hey coach, how come we didn't ever play 40 minutes of hell? I said, you did. Said we, we did. I said, yeah, you did. Because it wasn't called 40 minutes. Yours would have been called 32 minutes of hell. <laughs> <laughs> I, <see. laughs> they said, I said, what, what do y'all call me? Uh, my nickname. And, and there's a Spanish word that's carrera. Carrera means a coach that works your butt. <laughs> that's what they call me. I said, you guys gave me the name. Because when you come, put when you step across that line, you come to work. You come to play as hard as you can play. And if I can get that out of you, we got a chance to win. Right. I said, so I've been doing it every, I mean, every step of the way. Uh, that's why I say, you can't let someone tell you what you can and cannot do. You know, he can't play like that. He can't do this. Well, I, I, I proved to myself that we could, and that's all that's important. So the key is, can you see through my eyes what I want? Not through yours or your dad's or your friends or some coach that's coaching you in the summertime. That is not the eyes I need. I need to see the kind of things that we do and conditioning there is no substitute for it. None. We, you, don't, none you can put in front of getting into your body in the best of shape. Nothing. The way I play, you, you got to get your body ready. Yeah. And well, it worked. <laughs> um, you know, in your, in your, for the listener, if you want to watch a great Hall of Fame speech, watch, uh, watch Coach Richardson's uh, when he was inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame. It's, it's a fantastic uh, uh, use of a half an hour. Um, you had on the stage to be your introducers, you had uh, Tiny Archibald, who we'll talk about in a sec, but also John Thompson, uh, obviously the you know, legendary Georgetown coach. And you also referenced John Chaney uh, from Temple and George Raveling, who had coached at, at Iowa, Washington State and USC, um, uh, both African-American coaches. Tell me a little bit about like, what they meant to you and, and how influential they were. Each one of those guys are so important. When we start off with Nate Archibald, because he was the youngest, mm-hmm. I helped get him to play at Texas Western College, and he was going to leave one year because he wasn't very, thought he wasn't getting enough playing time. He wasn't this and that. Not he and I had a close friend of my assistant named Andy Stoglin. We talked him out of it. He became a superstar there, and he became very close to me, and I was a high school coach. Then we move over to George Ravelin. George George came to see me play way out in the sticks of Snyder, Texas. And he, he didn't know where he was going. Probably got lost five or six times trying to find that one little old school out there in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and we got to head off and got to talking basketball and from time to time visiting on the phone and, and, and headed off pretty good. And at that time, I was a junior college coach looking to hopefully 
make connections so that I can get to a, a major college one day. And George was one of those guys that knew everybody. And I wanted him to know that that was, uh, then you, you got Cheney. Cheney to me is one of the smartest men I've ever met in this game of basketball. I listened to him. I listened to the things he did and, and was very impressed with the fact that he's been around a long time, had been around a long time. And he became very close. Big John and I really got to be buddy, buddy, because I I copied a lot of Big John's deals that he did. He had the beast of the East. I mean, they were a bunch of beasts. And the way they played you, they played you with their heart. That impressed me so much, the way he could get his players so play so hard. Uh, besides being a big guy, you have to be able to command and demand. You got to do both. And Big John could do both of them. And I, and I appreciate that so much. Yeah. And you used a, uh, a quote. You, it, it was a Vince Lombardi quote. And it, you used it in talking about John Thompson's teams and how you wanted to you know, kind of incorporate that yourself. And that was that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that fatigue. Yeah, fatigue. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that you wanted your teams to play like that, like you wanted to impose that fatigue on the other team. Um, and and true clearly, fact. clearly 40 minutes of hell did that, right? You better believe it. Yeah. And Vince, you know, of course, like you said, I've used that over and over again. Fatigue. Fatigue will make you a coward. Now, if, you, if you know, if you get tired, you don't you don't want no more. It's like a, a, a rat in a cheese factory. Uh, you don't want no cheese if, if somebody's trying to trap him. He wants out. And so uh, that's that's what we want to do. We want to get, we want to we want to be out. No, uh, the, the 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 main word that I was telling Coach Anderson is to me is that you go to work and going to work is an attitude, and it's attitude is how do you feel? If you don't feel good, you're not going to work good. So if you're getting ready to do something, you want to do it because you also feel good doing it. That makes sense. That absolutely does. Makes a ton of sense. Um, let me let me just ask you because I I know you I know you have to get going and I want to be respectful of your time. If I can just ask one or two quick questions. You got it. Okay. Um, besides the players you coached, right? You coached a bunch of guys who went to the pros, et cetera. Aside from the guys you coached, who were some of the players you just loved to watch, even though they weren't on your side? I like to watch. I used to like to watch Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. Got to play against him when he was a freshman. I was at Tulsa. I enjoyed watching him play. Uh, you're talking about, is it present day or Curry? I, I like to watch him. Him, him shoot the ball. I don't. I don't watch a lot of pro basketball though. I, I I tell you what. I I looked at James, and he was in the tenth grade, ninth or tenth grade, and I never forget. I thought he was. I thought he was already a freshman in college, and he was in the tenth grade. James, I okay. Love watching him. He's a, he's a man among men, and you know, Larry Larry Johnson was one of my favorite guys. Grandmama, we called him. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, I like I said, uh, the the Pressy kid was if there was any. Well, he's, he's on my team, but he he he's totally. Uh, is, there's no one that fits in the same category that he fits because he he was the best at every position. That's why they called him a point forward because he actually was a point guard who played a forward position. He could guard a guard, a center a postman, a guard, or a forward. He could he could guard all those positions, and he could play out of every position. And, and, and he gave you what you needed. If you need five boards, Paul gets you five. If you need yeah. 15 points and he's been getting you eight, he gets you 15 now. Right. He, he gets you what you need. I, I never had a guy like that. Yeah, he, he, he strikes me, you know, having never spoken to you, obviously, before, he strikes me as the perfect Nolan Richardson player, right? He's in the NBA. Oh, he's yeah. on the all-defensive team every year. He's a point forward, say, which means he can play every position on the field. It's just, yeah, he just strikes me as, like, your type of guy. And, and, he's, and his personality. He's an easygoing, quiet, peaceful, 
but don't cross him because he'll 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 fight you in a, in a in a minute. But he don't go around trying to show that he's a, one of the toughest guys. He just plays the game. He's a it's a blessing to watch him play. Right. That's yeah. great. Okay. Well, Co- Coach Richardson, I have to tell you, it's it's just so great to like listen to these stories from your days growing up in in El Paso and and you know kind of working your way through the junior college ranks and playing at UTEP for Don Haskins and then uh, becoming a coach in your own right and and working your way from Tulsa, you know, through winning a national championship and going to three Final Fours with Arkansas. Uh, just a just a real treat to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Chasing Hardware. I want to thank you for letting me be able to, to express myself and, and what happened to me during my career. That's great. Well, it was certainly a fascinating story. And thank you again for coming on. You're very welcome. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.